0: Well, amen. I've said it before, and it is worth, I believe, saying again. Um, I want you to know how thankful I am to be a part of, and I want church that values the simple means of grace. And I want to um, remind those. Uh, who've heard me say that before and uh, explain to those who haven't exactly what I mean by that. Um, Many of us in this room, and and again, some of you are going to remember me saying this before, but many of us in this room uh, have a similar experience in common. And that similar experience is after we came to faith in Christ, we, of course, were naturally and rightly encouraged to begin our journey of discipleship. And there were um, several means of growth that were placed before us as new believers that we were to be involved in, to to be good disciples. We were to go to church. We were to read our Bibles. We were to pray. We were to journal. We were to give. We were to get involved in small groups. We were to volunteer in the community. Uh, We were uh, to evangelize, Uh, we were to find someone to disciple us one-on-one, and we were to find someone to disciple ourselves, and all of those things were good things, very positive things for us. But this list emphasizes the wrong thing, and it also omits what is actually the most important thing. First, it wrongly emphasizes that spiritual growth is our responsibility in terms of it being something that we do. It's it's about our activity rather than the Holy Spirit's activity. It's about what we do rather than what has been done for us and is being done for us by the Lord, by His Spirit. And second, it wrongly omits the sacraments. Which I submit is where discipleship not only begins, but necessarily continues. And that's because the sacraments are God's appointed means of grace. And it's through those means of grace that in the words of our shorter catechism, question 88, that Christ communicates faith, the redemption, to those who look to him in faith. Right, the benefits of redemption, which includes our sanctification and growth in grace. You see, God knew as our creator, knowing us better than we know ourselves, that when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to those invisible, eternal realities, that we need more because of our fallenness, because of the, our physical nature being, having been created and because of our fallenness, that we need something in addition to what we hear. We need, um, well, he's ordained, because of that, he is, he is ordained to create faith through the preaching of the word, and he is ordained to confirm and strengthen our faith through natural created things. He knew he would need something that we could not only hear, but you've, you hear me say on a weekly basis that those things that, that we can touch and we can, we can see, we can touch, we can taste and we can smell. He knew that we needed to have all five senses engaged as we, as we seek to grow in godliness, I've shared this illustration before, but it's like whenever our family gets together, whether, who, whoever's, no matter whose house we're at, and uh, when we leave, we all say love you, and then we hug each other. Um, it's not like we need to hug each other because we, we don't hear the I love you. We understand the I love you. We get the I love you, and, and we believe it to be true having heard it. But there's something about having the hug while it's being said or after the fact that kind of seals the deal. There's something that affirms that, that love within us, and, and so it, 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 it signs and, and it, it's a sign and seal of that love. It's a visible word that's tangible that we can hold on to. And that's how the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper work. Through the physical elements of water and bread and wine, we are pointed to Christ and His work on our behalf, and we are not only assured of His disposition toward us, but the benefits of His work are sealed upon our hearts. He doesn't use them to point to what we've done or to what we've promised, He uses them to not only remind us, but to point us to what Christ has done for us and the promises that the Father has made to us through Him. They're channels of God's grace. They make His saving grace known to us. They represent Christ and His benefits to us. And, and God uses them to stir up and to strengthen and to increase our faith and to us to move toward obedience and to solidify our fellowship with him and with one another. And all of this is accomplished, as question 91 of our Shorter Catechism says, by the blessing of Christ and the working of his Spirit in those who by faith receive them. So our spiritual growth is not something, again, that is a result of what we do, but it's a result of the Spirit's work. Through our hearing, seeing, touching, tasting, and smelling again and again and again what Christ has done for us. It's through these simple means that we're reminded of our depravity and our sin and our spiritual bankruptcy. But we're also reminded of his cleansing and forgiveness and redemption and adoption that has been given to us and granted to us through Christ. It's through... These simple means that we're reminded of His sufficiency. He is sufficient to meet all of our needs. It's through these simple means that He and His benefits of redemption are offered to us and received by us. So when I say that I'm grateful for the simple means of grace and the simple means of of grace ministry of our church, I'm saying that all we need... When we worship is our Bibles, a little water, a little bread, and a little wine. We don't need lights, we don't need cameras, we don't need sound systems or programs or strategies for growth or performances. Our primary responsibility is the preaching of the Word and the right administration of the sacraments, and for that I am eternally grateful as a pastor. But I have to admit to you something. I've realized something uh, since joining the PCA in 2014, and that is this. We in Reformed circles, and maybe this is just my take, I'll I'll put it that way. My take is that we spend um, significantly more time talking about one sacrament than we do the other. Um, When it comes to talking to those who are new to the Reformed faith, we spend a lot more time talking about baptism, and in particular, covenant baptism of our children. And I get it. But we spend more time doing that than we spend talking about the Lord's Supper. And it's the Lord's Supper that confirms and strengthens our faith in the midst of our ongoing struggle with sin and doubt, and coming from the backgrounds that many of us come from, it's just as different as the reform view of the sacraments is is what I'm referring to, and it's my hope tonight that this text, and the reason we chopped this up, right, we could have taken this whole... Last two weeks and put it into one, the reason I chopped it up is because I wanted to take the time tonight to specifically address the supper itself, because it's my hope that it will not only elicit a greater appreciation for the Lord's Supper, but it will engender a deeper desire to understand it so that we all possess a greater assurance and comfort that we need. In the words of John Calvin, he said, The Lord's Supper is a sacrament ordained, not for the perfect, but for the weak and feeble, to awaken, arouse, stimulate, and exercise the feeling of faith and love, indeed to correct the defect of both. And so let's go to the Lord in in prayer and pray for that to happen. Father, by your Spirit, Would you grant power to the preaching of your word this evening? Would you grant all of us the spiritual eyes and ears that we need to appraise and apprehend the truth regarding these words of Christ and his gospel and this supper? Awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us, and as always, then refresh us and encourage us and comfort us. I'm unfit for this task to which you've called me, and so I pray that you would attend to me as I do this work, and grant me grace, and fill me with your spirit that I might do something good for you. And I pray particularly for our children who are, have been having conversations with their parents and who are contemplating um, coming to the table, and I pray, Father, that you would use this to stir up in them that desire and to encourage them to give them the answers they seek, and it's in Christ's name that we pray, Amen. And amen. All right. Well, we left off last week. We left our story with the secret plan having been implemented. All right. It was a plan that we said was diabolical. Uh, it was a um, it was a wicked betrayal, and it was motivated by cowardice and disappointment and greed. But we also said that this secret plan that was now in place was a part of something greater. It was a part of a greater plan. It was a part of a sovereign plan. It was a part of a predetermined plan through which God was going to bring about his redemptive purposes in his people. And We're going to pick up where we left off. If you remember, Jesus had told Peter and John to go and prepare the Passover. And, and we saw that he told them that they would go into town and they would meet a man with a jar, and, that, um, and they did. And that man with the jar was going to take them to a house owned by a man, and, and he did. And, and that man in the house was going to offer a room to observe the Passover, and he did. And thus, as he told them, going to be furnished, and it was. Right? Everything was found just as he told them. But their job wasn't just to find and prepare the room. Right? Their job was to prepare for the Passover, so they had to prepare for the meal as well. Which means they had to go shopping, they had to pick up the wine, they had to pick up the unleavened bread, they had to pick up the bitter herbs and the greens and the stewed fruit and, and the lamb. And they not only had to buy the unblemished lamb, but they had to go to the temple and take the lamb and then stand in line with everybody else to wait for that lamb to be sacrificed, to be slaughtered. And when it was their turn, they brought the lamb to the priest, and the priest sacrificed the lamb, and that included killing the lamb, it included gathering its blood, it included uh, taking out its entrails before it was returned to them so that they could go and roast it for the meal that was going to be eaten, particularly with the bitter herbs and and the bread. So there was a lot to do. And in these next seven verses that we're going to find tonight, we're going to find three things that were involved in Uh, following this preparation, right? We're going to pick it up where everything's been prepared. We're going to look at the sentiment expressed. We're going to look at the supper expanded and then the sacrament explained, right? The sentiment expressed, the supper expanded, and the sacrament explained. So let's start with the sentiment first. Look at verse 14. It says, and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. The hour had come. Right, it's finally arrived. The time has arrived. The plan was unfolding in a timely fashion. It was unfolding just as God had determined it to unfold. Everything was happening in the order that it should have occurred when it, when it should have occurred. And This was a, a, a perfect plan. We said last week a perfect plan that had been set in motion a long time ago. And when the time was right, or to use other biblical language, when the fullness of time had come, Jesus and his disciples enter the room and they recline at table. Now, they're not sitting at the table like da Vinci has painted, or, or painted. Right? They're reclined. It, I've described this before as well. Uh, they're sitting, the, the room that's uh, been prepared, that they found furnished, has a table in the middle, and a U-shape of couches around it. The Romans would have called it a triclinium. And those that are eating the meal are going to be reclined, they're going to be leaning on their left elbow, their head toward the middle where the table is, their feet toward the outside. They're going to be on their left so they can eat with their right hand. And they're going to eat family style when the food actually arrives. And so they're reclining and and as they're reclining, Jesus says what he says in verse 15, He looks around the room and he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He's emphatic. It doesn't really sound like it, but the the language is such that he's emphatic. Enthusiastic desire, little slight inclination. It's not just a, a wee bit of enthusiastic desire. This is an intense longing that he's expressing here. He wants to be with them. Because he loves them, and he doesn't just love them, he even likes them. He's been with them for three or so years, day and night, and their relationship has developed to the point that despite the fact that they're just, at times, utter dunderheads, he considers them his closest friends, and on the night before he would be wickedly betrayed, and wrongly accused, and unjustly tried, and convicted, and brutally beaten, and heinously murdered. The number one thing on his to-do list is to eat this meal with them. But his desire to eat this meal with them wasn't just because of who they were, or how he felt about them, or how much they meant to him, his desire was to eat this meal with them was also due to the fact that this meal, what he was going to do is share this meal with them, but he was going to point them in the direction. He was going to show them to whom this meal pointed and how it was going to be fulfilled. Which brings us to the second point, the supper expanded. Again, look at verse 15, and he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He desired to eat this meal with them because this was the highlight. This was the central event on the Jewish calendar. This was a celebration and a commemoration. It was a much-anticipated feast that happened every spring. Again, this commemorated the pivotal event up to that point in redemptive history. It was a joyful fellowship. It was going to commemorate what the Lord had done on behalf of His people, which meant it was going to commemorate what had He had done for their forefathers before them and and how they uh, benefited as well. It was a a family event and they were his family. But he also desired to eat with it because this would be the last Passover he and they would ever observe. There wouldn't be another Passover. What, What they didn't know at that time was he was about to turn their world upside down in the midst of this meal. Because this Passover supper was the last Passover supper supper because of what he was about to do. What he was about to do had never, ever been done before. He was about to do, well, he was going to take or make the supper that had been all about Israel's redemption out of Egypt by the blood of a lamb and turn it around and make it about the ultimate redemption of God's people from sin and death through the blood of the lamb who is himself. In other words, he was going to take this meal that that focused on a lamb and, and, and the people of Israel. He was going to turn this around and make it really, he's making it about himself. And finally, he also desired to eat this meal with them because it would be the last time that he would eat and drink with them in this way for a very long time. They wouldn't eat together physically like this until this meal was ultimately fulfilled when the kingdom was consummated. They would not eat together like this again until they ate and drank together at the marriage supper of the Lamb that we read about in Revelation 19. This was this supper was far more than the typical Passover. This is far more than the supper they grew up anticipating and traveling to Jerusalem to participate in. This this occasion would begin a new meal. It would begin a new feast and a new commemoration. And it was a new commemoration of a more fuller and final redemption and involved a greater anticipation of a full and final consummation upon his return. And all of that brings us to the meal itself. And while I don't want to bog us down in details, and I don't want to to overwhelm us or or, or any of us to get lost in the details, it's important for us to, to take a few of them as we go along. To truly understand what he's doing here. When the Passover was celebrated, part of that liturgy was... uh, The head of the household would would lead the family in a liturgy. And a part of that liturgy was reciting Psalms 113 through 118, the Hillel Psalms. Um, And the head of the household, in the midst of doing that, he uh, would begin the whole thing with a blessing of the evening, of the commemoration, and also of the first of four cups of wine. And it's this first cup of wine that's called the Thanksgiving cup that he has, that we just read, he distributed to the disciples and told them to share among themselves. And at that point, the meal would have been brought in, right? It wasn't there yet, but now the blessing has taken place, the wine, the first cup of wine has been uh, been shared among themselves, so they bring in uh, the the meal, again, unleavened bread, uh, bitter herbs, fruit, greens, and The roasted lamb. The bitter herbs were to be a reminder of the bitterness that the Israelites experienced in slavery in Egypt. And of course, the roasted lamb was a reminder of God's fulfillment of the 10th plague. We talked about that last week. The 10th plague in which the lamb had been slain or, or slaughtered or sacrificed on behalf of the oldest son. And that blood was placed upon the lintels and doorposts so that God himself would pass by and spare the home so typically before uh, they would eat one of the children some I read some said oldest some said youngest but one of the children was prompted to ask the question what are we doing what's this commemorating what's this meal all about and the head of the household would begin to explain and he would answer that question by saying well It's it's about the Passover, and it's about Exodus, and he would tell that story. And after the story, he led the family in praise and thanksgiving, thanking God for all that he had done on their behalf. And then they would drink the second cup of wine. And as they were drinking the second cup of wine, the head of the household would take the unleavened bread, and he would bless it, and he would break it, into pieces, and then pass it out to everyone, and they were going to eat that. They were going to dip it in uh, to the bitter herbs in, in the center. And his blessing would have been something like this. He would have said, this is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat this Passover meal. Does that language sound familiar? And I said that typically would have happened because on this night, Luke says, at this point, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Rather than take and eat the bread that symbolizes affliction, in the land of Egypt, in order to remember their affliction, Jesus says they were to take and eat his body. He was going to take on their affliction and their suffering within the next 24 hours in their place and on their behalf. And then at some point, after they had eaten, Luke says he took a third cup of wine. And again, rather than follow the typical liturgy, which was to offer a prayer and thank God for his covenant faithfulness, Jesus inserted again his own words and said, this cup is poured out for you, that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. And in so doing, Jesus says, said to them, look, just as the blood of bulls and goats ratified or officially validated the old covenant which for us, we read about in Exodus 24. He says, it's my blood that will be shed on my cross that will ratify the new covenant that, of course, we read about in Jeremiah 31. And every time, he says, every time you eat this meal, the benefits of that covenant and of my gospel promise to you that is already yours by faith, will not only be declared, but it'll be affirmed and confirmed. And when we take the two statements together, we, we know he's saying, I am the Passover lamb. I am going to give my life for you that you might not taste death. I'm going to taste death so that you might have life. He says, I'm the Passover lamb. I shed my blood that you might be cleansed, forgiven, and set free. You're now hiding under my blood. It's my blood that's covering you. And he also says, I'm gonna be with you. This meals, he says, This meal's my pledge of my abiding presence with you. I'm promising to be with you through this bread and through this wine as it's consecrated for this purpose. This bread and wine, this, this supper is a pledge of not only of my presence. Right? That I'm going to be with you, but th- these elements are the means through which I am going to be with you. And notice that he didn't say the bread and the wine will become my body and blood, particularly if it's consecrated by a priest. He doesn't say, you know, this is bread and wine. It's, they're just symbols. They're, just, they're merely symbols of my body and blood. He says, this is my blood. He said, this is, this is my body. This is my blood. It's sacramental language. You see, every sacrament has two aspects to it. There's the sign and the thing signified. And as you hear me say often, the sign is so closely related to that which it represents, one is often called the other. So in baptism, we have the sign which is water, and the thing signified is regeneration. In the Lord's Supper, we have the sign of bread and wine, and the thing that signified is Christ and all of his benefits of redemption, all of the benefits of what he has done for us on our behalf. And while the, th- the sign is not the thing signified, and they shouldn't be conflated, the relationship between the, the signs and the thing signified is such that sometimes biblical writers, will say things like, baptism is regeneration, even though the water does not regenerate. And we say that we eat and feed upon Christ, even though the bread and the wine do not become or contain the body or blood of Christ, physically. We have to remember, Christ rose from the grave bodily. He ascended into heaven bodily. He sits at the right hand of the Father bodily, and he is going to return one day bodily. So when we say that we're eating and feeding upon Christ, we're not saying we're eating and feeding upon him physically. We're saying we're eating and feeding upon him truly, but spiritually. And we say that because of the Spirit's work within the sacrament. I want you to hear these words from Michael Horton, he says this, the Holy Spirit overcomes the distance between us and the risen Savior, making the sacramental union effective. The Reformed emphasize the mystery at this point. We simply do not know how this happens, but scripture affirms that it does. What we do know, he says, is that the thing signified, Christ and all his benefits, is not present either in the place of bread or wine, or in, with, or under the bread, or wine, or merely symbolically. It's presence, it is present in the sacrament inasmuch as the Holy Spirit is able to unite us to Christ in heaven. And I also, and I've, I've debated about doing this because it's a little longer than I usually like to read, but I love how Article 35 of the Belgian Confession says it. Hang in there with me, okay? Christ, that He might represent unto us the spiritual and heavenly bread, hath instituted an earthly and visible bread as a sacrament of His body and wine as a sacrament of His blood to testify by them unto us that as certainly as we receive and hold this sacrament in our hands and eat and drink the same with our mouths by which our life is afterwards nourished, we also do as certainly receive by faith which is the hand and mouth of our soul, spiritual life. Body and blood of Christ, our only Savior, in our souls for the support of our spiritual life. Now, as it is certain and beyond all doubt that Jesus Christ has not enjoined to us the use of his sacraments in vain, so he works in us all that he represents to us by these holy signs, though the manner surpasses our understanding and cannot be comprehended by us as the operations of the Holy Ghost are hidden and incomprehensible. In the meantime, we err not when we say that what is eaten and drunk by us is the proper and natural body and the proper blood of Christ. But the manner of our partaking of the same is not by the mouth, but by the Spirit through faith. Thus then, though Christ always sits at the right hand of His Father in heaven, Yet doth he not therefore cease to make us partakers of himself by faith? This feast is a spiritual table at which Christ communicates himself with all his benefits to us and gives us there to enjoy both himself and the merit of his suffering and death, nourishing, strengthening, and comforting our poor, comfortless souls by the eating of his flesh, quickening and refreshing them by the drink of his blood. Amen. Amen. We say, why is that important? These elements of bread and wine are more than object lessons by which we remember Christ's sacrifice. And those aren't my words, those are Calvin's words. He says the sacramental signs are not merely symbols of some absent reality. They are not merely visual object lessons intended to cause us to recollect the absent realities that they represent. Because the uh, the sign and the thing signified are not to be separated. The reality is where the sign is. Christ is here. Christ is here. By his spirit. So just as God does something through the Word when it's met by His Spirit, God does something through these elements when met by His Spirit. When the Spirit meets the Word, faith is created. And when the Spirit meets these elements, that faith that's been created is sustained and strengthened and nurtured and increased through this meal. But not only must these elements be met By the Spirit, they also must be met with faith. They must be received by faith. And I know I'm quoting a lot of people, but they say it much better than I do. Keith Matheson puts it this way. He says, we can put food and water in the mouth of a living person, and we can put food and water in the mouth of a corpse. The objective life-giving properties of the food and water are the same in both cases, but the food and water are not received by the corpse and do nothing for it. In order for the objective life-giving properties of physical food to be truly received by the person, that person must be physically alive. Then he says, in order for the objective life-giving properties of the sacramental food to be truly received by a person, that person must be spiritually alive. Something significant happens here. When we come to this table, it's not about our doing, it's about what God is doing for us. We come to receive. That's our part. And when we come in faith, we come not only believing that, that Christ is our Savior, we come not only believing that it's His sacrifice alone that has saved us from our sins, But we come believing that when we come in faith and when we receive these elements, that we receive Him. That too is by faith. When we come in faith, we come to truly eat of His flesh and blood. That's language from John 6, by the way. Jesus Himself. But just like those who originally heard that, Sometimes all we can say is and and simply confess, that's hard to understand. But just because it's hard to understand doesn't make it any less true. We come because we have nowhere else. Remember how Peter ended that. We come because we have nowhere else to go. Jesus gives life. We we, We have no life apart from him. So, brothers and sisters, there's only one takeaway really tonight. It's not a long list. The Bible says that it's God's will for us that we be sanctified. And the Shorter Catechism defines that as a work of God's free grace in which we are renewed in the whole man um, to the image of God, after the image of God. And, and we're enabled more and more to die to our sin and to live into righteousness. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that we're to flee from idolatry and flee to Christ. And the primary means of both our sanctification and our escape from idolatry that Christ himself has provided is right here. Flee to here, flee to Him, flee to this table. The Lord Christ loves us, He even likes us. He's not ashamed to call us friend and brother and sister. And He desires for us to come and to feed upon Him and taste and see that He is good. And he is, he is, and he he wants us to do that because he is who we need most. And that's why we do it weekly. And when we come, we are truly satisfied. So, just a minute after we confess our faith together, for those who are hungry and thirsty, come and eat and drink. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive this word with faith and love and to lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Bless those who have heard your word preached and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. In Christ's name, amen.